two words that I believe are some of the most powerful in language. What if? And as we contemplate the what if, we recognize the possibilities that exist for us, that there is literally nothing that we can't do if we can imagine it. LeVar, how you doing? I'm all right, brother. <laughs> I'm, all, <laughs> I'm all right. Under the circumstances, I think I'm doing, um, I'm doing all right. Well, to uh, remind our listeners, uh, this uh, segment that we do, uh, it's rather new for us. It's called, What Are You Doing? Uh, and it's just a chance to call uh, friends of ours uh, who are creatives and see how they're keeping themselves creatively involved during this current lockdown. And so, LeVar, uh, you know what amazes me about you is I can spend time getting to know you a little bit, uh, but then no matter how long we talk or, or uh, no matter how long I talk to other people about you, I, I keep getting surprised for by everything that you're involved with. <laughs> I keep seeing you pop up in the news and I'm like, he what? He did this? He did that? You're, uh, you don't sit still too much. I don't, no. Um... Ever since I discovered that it was my responsibility to um, stay active in my career and to not wait around for the phone to ring in order for me to do what it is I love doing, um, I got busy. You are preaching my sermon. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, 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 I, and I've stayed busy ever since I came to that, that revelation. That's great. And from what I can gather, your, your newest... Uh, endeavor is uh, is your podcast, right? Um, it's one of them, yeah. I've been doing the podcast for a few years now. Oh, My really? absolute newest in- endeavor is a series um, on YouTube called This Is My Story, where I I recount the stories of, um, of friends of mine, all black people, and all black people in America have a story about what it's like being black in America and, and being um, the recipient of un- Solicited attention simply for being black and, you know, driving while black, um, eating in a restaurant while black, bird watching while black. I mean, these are all the kinds of stories that um, that I recount um, in my series. This is my story. And when did you start this? Um, I started this uh, back at the beginning of this year, back in January. Yeah, that is crazy good timing. Yeah, right? <laughs> yeah, 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 it was, it was, um, because we, we did these and, and loved the way they turned out, um, and we're gearing up to do more when COVID-19 hit, and the attention completely went to, to that everywhere. I mean, and everybody's attention went to that, and then all of a sudden... Um, a cop kneeled on the neck of a man in Minnesota and our attention became really split. But the social justice conversation took off in a way I never anticipated that it would. Not in my lifetime, anyway. I mean, I'm, a, I'm, I'm literally a child of the 60s. I was born in 1957. So I grew up during the 60s and 70s and the civil rights movement. And, and so I, I experienced... A, a period of tumultuous change in this country already, you know. Um, I was in elementary school when John Kennedy was assassinated, when Martin Luther King and Bobby Kennedy were assassinated in the same year. I was, you know, I, was, I wasn't in the eighth grade yet. So this moment that we are, that we find ourselves in now, I didn't see this coming. I did not see this coming. What do you think changed to make this possible right now? I think there are a couple of factors that, that contributed mightily to, to this current moment. Um, one, technology, the advent of the cell phone camera, the cell phone video camera. Um, I think it was Will Smith who said, this has all been going on. This has been going on for a long time. We're just recording it now. And because of the technology, because of the video camera on your phone, we have been able to document more of the instances of the injustices that black people and brown people face every day living in this country, in this culture. 
And as such, um, the numbers of those stories has seemed to have reached, I guess, a, a tipping point where enough of them have been seen so that it is no longer interpreted as anecdotal, that it has been perceived now as, holy shit, this really does go on every day to people of color and black people. This is their reality. It's, it's, they're not exaggerating. My God, I had no idea. And so then when the protests started, that sense of empathy was present in the hearts of people who had not been a part of the struggle, who had been on the sidelines because it wasn't their struggle, it didn't relate to them, but now suddenly it did because they were confronted with the reality. And so white people in, in unprecedented numbers took to the streets as well and marched with their black brothers and sisters and their brown brothers and sisters and their brothers and sisters who are non-binary gendered. And I think now we have we, we are reaching some perhaps some sort of critical mass and that there may be, in fact, real, significant, necessary and lasting change. Yeah, I saw this, the the uh, segment that you did on MSNBC with Andrea Mitchell recently. Mm. Actually, it was on Juneteenth. It was Juneteenth. Yeah. And you articulated how this Juneteenth was different and what it meant to you in a way that I really, really loved. I don't remember if you, I don't know if you remember how you put it. I don't remember what I said, but, <laughs> but I know that I meant it. <laughs> As we should probably let our listeners who are not familiar with the holiday still, we should let them in and don't feel bad if you, if you don't, if you're not, because it was, I was in my late thirties on the set of hell on wheels when a very patient common had to explain to me <laughs> what Juneteenth was. And it is a, um, to sometimes called uh, the Black Fourth of July. It is a celebration of the day that uh, federal troops arrived in Galveston, Texas, and informed the people who thought they were still slaves that they were actually free men and women. Um, and you said about the one this year, you said that it seems like that message was delivered mm -hmm. in 1865, on June 19th, 1865, and it has taken 150 years for it to reach the rest of America. That's so correct. Here we are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That 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 the the original Juneteenth was was a, a, about the time it took for the message to travel, right? Mm. And um, and that message has is now just arriving in the 20th century, in 2020. Yeah. Yeah, I think a, a lot of people were also really shocked, not just um, with George Floyd, but shortly before George Floyd, you mentioned the bird watching mm -hmm. incident in uh, in Brooklyn that happened when uh, uh, this woman, Amy Cooper, uh, there's a video of her threatening to uh, actually calling the police to file a false report. Mm -hmm. uh, she got, uh, she was charged just yeah. this very day. Yeah. And I remember Ms. a lot Cooper. of uh, my white friends talking about this and then seeing mm -hmm. uh, black journalists chime in and go, oh, happens all the time. And that, uh, that is terribly shocking. It's just, it's, it's something, it's one thing to, as you say, to hear it, it's another thing to see it. It is. It's one thing to hear about lynching. It's another thing to watch a video of Ahmad Aubrey be gunned down in broad daylight by people who stalked him, clearly stalked him because the camera angle was from the rear. <laughs> and, and the man with the gun jumped out of the back of a pickup truck that was parked awaiting his arrival. So it's one thing to hear about stuff like that. It is. You're right, Anson. It's a whole other ball game when you see it because you can no longer deny it. You can no longer say, ah, you know, you're probably exaggerating, but once you're confronted with the reality, it's, it's hard. It's hard to deny. And how's the response been to your YouTube project? Oh, wow. Um, yeah, people, <laughs> people are digging it. People, 
a lot of the comments are around thank you thank you for telling these stories um the story i tell is a story that um from my years of of being in college um the year that i got roots um i was a sophomore uh, at USC here in Los Angeles, University of Southern California. And I didn't have a car um, when I moved here to Los Angeles. And so my first, my freshman year, I lived in an apartment in Koreatown at Western and Ninth. Um, and I took the bus to, to, to campus every day. Oh um, but when I first got to LA, the buses were on strike. Um, so that was, that that proved really difficult. So I was determined my sophomore year to live closer to campus. And I responded to an ad that was posted by the Sigma Alpha Mu fraternity. Uh, Sigma Alpha Mu or the Sammy House is the Jewish fraternity house um, in, in the United States. And um, they had a couple of spaces in their house and they were open to taking in boarders. And so for whatever the, the monthly fee was, I, I got um, room and board, two, two meals a day and, uh, and a place to sleep that was literally across the street from campus, you know. Um, and as this house, you know, was full of young men, it, it was noisy, it was rowdy. Um, up until about 11, 30, 12 o'clock when things would finally settle down. And that's when I did all my studying between, you know, like midnight and 2.30 um, because that was the, the quiet time in the house. And when I finished studying, I would walk east on 28th Street and turn right on Figueroa and walk to the Vagabond Motor Hotel and coffee shop to get something to eat. And that first two to three months uh, the first quarter, really, of my sophomore year living on Fraternity Row, um, I was stopped by law enforcement almost nightly, answering the description of someone who was stealing stereos or, um, you know, uh, wanted for some illegal activity or another. Now, you got to understand that Fraternity Row at USC um, is home to some of the sons and daughters of the most influential people in America. And their relationship with LAPD is um, purposeful. <laughs> and I was the first person of color to ever live on this street. And so one night, and, and, and I never left the house without my student ID, which had my address, 809 West 28th Street, printed on it because... The message that I was being sent was that you don't belong here. You don't belong here. You don't belong here. How could you possibly belong here? One thing is not like these others, and you're that one thing, right? And so one night, I was cut off by an LAPD cruiser. Doors fly open, and I'm staring point blank down the barrel of a shotgun. Now, what happened next was really... It was a pivotal moment in my life. It was critically important because what I noticed was that the cop on the passenger side, who was also standing with his hand on his gun, he did not have it, it out and it wasn't pointing at me that the shotgun was. He had stopped me just a night or two before. And what clicked for me was that he doesn't see me. He only sees the color of my skin. And that's, that's when I really got on a, on a beneath the layers of my skin level, that I, I really, really understood the pervasive uh, nature of racism and, and how it really does damage through dehumanization. You're from Sacramento. Um, yeah. Was it? Was it had you experienced anything similar there? Was it um... not to that degree? No, I mean um, I'd experienced racism. I mean I'm <laughs> I'm black and I live in America. You <laughs> you you do, you do not escape the scourge. You just don't. There are aggressions, macro and micro, that go on all the time. Kids can be so amazingly cruel and are um 
and that stuff is is learned it's it's not it's not simply learned from the attitude of the parents at home it's learned through media it's learned through osmosis just living in america you 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 absorb it you you can't help it because it's such a part of how we communicate everything in this country in this culture there isn't a single there isn't a single thing there isn't there isn't anything in america that isn't touched by the issue of race that doesn't stem from from slavery and its attendant um, scourge of racism. Nothing in America is all about that. You can't, you can't, you, you can't experience America unless you experience racism on some level, right? As 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 either the you know the recipient or the one doling it out. You know, it's just that it's part of our DNA. In this country, I think um, it's been referred to as you know, our country's birth defect, and I think it's it's something. It's, it's very hard to have this conversation with uh, white people who don't want to hear it uh, because they don't want to f- accept the fact that it's just part of our DNA, like you said, because it always triggers the you know the I'm being ambushed. I'm being blamed. You want me to feel bad. You want me to feel guilty. And it just throws up a wall instantly. You know, and I try to talk to friends and family about it. You can just see it. It's like a, a shield. It's like a literal <laughs> shield goes up. Whoosh, you're trying to make me feel bad. Not going to listen to another word. I, I, I mean, I think it has to come from, you know, us more, you know, these sort of conversations and confronting friends and family about that. But it... I don't know. Do you have, as someone who's had to think about this their entire lives, you know, any advice for <laughs> putting, uh, uh, making white people less f- frightened to discuss the subject? I have no, um, <laughs> I have no no tips or tools <laughs> for you. <laughs> You know, I didn't think so, but I was going to just see maybe, if maybe possibly. <laughs> I, I can say um, I, I, I believe you are, are right, Brandon, because uh, I'm tired. I'm, I'm tired of carrying the conversation. I agree with you. It is really time for white people to educate other white people. And, and why I am encouraged right now is because I, I am experiencing um, white, white allies as being willing to do the work as being willing to take the burden off of their black brothers and sisters and do the work, educate themselves and then educate others. Um, each one, teach one, as Jesse used to say. Mm. Um, and, and so I, I am actually, I'm encouraged. I think that we have a chance of actually getting some, something done this time around. That's great. You, you mentioned your, um, you mentioned children just a little while ago, and and I, one of the things I've always admired about you is your your care, uh, your love for all children, as well as their their education. Um, could you tell us a little bit about Skybrary? Um, Skybrary uh, is the digital version of a show that I hosted and produced for years and years on PBS called Reading Rainbow, um, which was designed to create um, a relationship between children who were just beginning to crack the code, just, just beginning to read um, proficiently and, and cement a relationship between them and, and the written word. Um, it was a television show in, that, that started in an era where television was still um, being considered a, a, an enemy of education. But it was a show that was that was on PBS, and and so um, it was an experiment, you know, to see whether or not we could improve, increase the reading and comprehension skills over a, the period of the summer, which is when teachers refer to the the, the summer loss phenomenon or the summer slide, right? 
um, because of that three-month break, your reading and comprehension skills suffer. So our, 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 our idea was let's, let's create a show to keep them interested in reading during the summer months and see what, what happens. Um, and the, the results were extraordinary. Um, and, and we proved that, uh, that it was possible to use technology in the service of education in a very powerful way. And so um, after having done that for 26 years and, and finishing what I felt was my, um, a, a natural run of the show, I mean, 26 years is a long time to do, <laughs> to do a show. Um, and I felt like I had, I had done enough and it was time to move on. And, um, and then new tech, newer technologies started emerging. And in looking at the iPad, I thought, wow, here's a real opportunity to, to perhaps duplicate what we did with television. And so raised a little money and, and hired a team, developed an app that was originally called the Reading Rainbow app and, um, and launched it. And, and we proved all over again that technology can be an absolute ally in the service of educating kids, especially when it comes to providing them with quality literature in a form that, that they are drawn to. It's that engagement factor that television provided in the 80s and, and the, the small screens provide for kids these days that is the key, but it's the quality content that they consume on the device that makes the difference. And, um, and so we did that. We, we had a Kickstarter um, and raised a, a bunch of money to expand our platform. We were looking to raise a million dollars in 30 days and, and raised a million dollars on our very first day by dinner. <laughs> Due to the fact that, that there's a, a whole generation of adults now who had grown up on the show, right? And, and um, they remembered, they remembered how important that show was in, in, in their lives and wanted to provide that same sort of experience to other kids. And so we ended up raising $6.5 million. Um, Seth MacFarlane, yes, that Seth yeah. MacFarlane, um, gave us a cool mill. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Indeed. Seth says that his childhood, um, in his childhood, he chain smoked books. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just, I love that image. That legacy that you have left must, that's fantastic. I mean, that, that the six, it, to the tune of 6.5 million. I mean, how does that feel to have just all of that heart, you know, given back to you, have that 26 years validated so overwhelmingly yeah yeah it was uh, it was hard to let in i mean it was it was it was literally it was overwhelming um it was hard to take in it, it really was um I, I, yeah yeah i still have difficult time talking about it uh, articulating it because uh, i i, I it, it's not anything that i it's, I didn't see that coming. You know what I mean? <laughs> I, that's nothing you can ever anticipate. I had, I, I literally had, uh, had no idea that it would be received the way it was. Um, the Kickstarter, it was, it was quite extraordinary, an extraordinary experience. It's, it's such a beautiful thing that you get to be kind of front and center to all the positive change, you know, that you've been a part of. Uh, in all these kids' lives, and what 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 what's, what form does the feedback take? <laughs> um, there isn't a there's hardly a day in my life that goes by where I don't hear from someone, um, either on social media or not so much in person these days. Um, but I hear a lot and have um, over time heard an awful lot from adults that I was a, an important part of their childhoods and, um, and that even just hearing my voice seems to have a positive impact on them, um, which is extraordinary. You will never hear me complain about, about my, my life or how my career um, has, has turned out because between Roots and Star Trek and Reading Rainbow, 
um, I have managed to stay relevant for 43 years in this business, which is a no small trick all by itself. But to also have, during that time, been a part of vehicles that do more than simply entertain, that cause us to think, and even on a good day, enlighten the human experience. And there is no better feeling for a storyteller than, than to have impact on the world through story. Hey, Wallpod listeners, we want to thank you for listening to our podcast. We hope you enjoy it as much as we enjoy making it. But it is a lot of hours on our end, from the recording to the editing to tracking down our next guest, all of which we really enjoy. But we enjoy it more when we know more people are listening. So if you could do us a favor and let your friends know about it. That could be a shout out on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook, or just turning to the person who works next to you at the office and saying, hey, check out this podcast. I kind of like it. Word of mouth is our best advertisement, and we want to keep growing this campfire circle. Also, if you'd like to receive our newsletter, go to our website, thewellpod.com, and click the newsletter tab. Newsletters go out semi-regularly or when we have something cool to announce. Okay, back to the show. Education has always been important to me. I was raised by a teacher. My mother, Irma Jean, was my first teacher, and... She impressed upon me the value of an education in this country, that an education commensurate to the one that white kids were having was the only way I was ever going to be treated as anything close to equal. Um, and it was certainly the best way for me to realize my most full potential in life. And so I have, uh, I've, I've wanted to pass that on to other kids to help them reach their most full potential. I, I believe that if you can read in at least one language, then, then you are in essence free because you can self-educate and, and no, one can, no one can dissuade you from the real truth because you have the power to, to f- figure it out on your own. You can pick up a book and take a look, which was part of the theme song. And that you don't have to take my word for it, which is, or, or anybody's word for it, which is another thing that I said in, in every episode of the show, um, that, that you, you, you are empowered to be the master of your own information universe. And in an age where, you know, we, we are living with uh, the idea that there is such a thing as alternate facts, we have the facility to discover and discern the truth for ourselves. Can I ask you something you said earlier? Did you say that, that reading rainbow was seen as an enemy to education? Well, television at, at the time. Was. Oh, I see. Not, not reading rainbow specific Just television. And, yeah, television yeah, yeah. was seen in certainly in educational circles. Uh, television was seen as, as, as the enemy that, you know, TV was going to rot the minds of America's children. Um, yeah. Well, I guess that kind of did happen really, but no. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Is, but isn't that the same argument that uh, Fred Rogers took to uh, Congress? That you could teach? Yes. How, how, what, what a great tool it could be, and he had to... Absolutely. Yeah. I guess we forget in the process of trying to make just entertainment and pie-in-the-face children's comedy and stuff. People forget, you know, what the power of it is. Fred Rogers was a, a, a real mentor um, of mine. He was a friend and, and, and a mentor. And it was Fred who really um, encouraged me in my effort, my desire to use the medium of television in a, in a positive way. Um, Fred, Fred was a, was, was a minister. Um, I studied for the priesthood, the Catholic priesthood earlier in my life. And so we really met on, on that field of, of, um, of service, spiritual service to humanity. And um, Fred was brilliant at speaking in a language to kids about, real, about the real world in an age-appropriate manner. I love that. I'm, I'm terribly jealous that you got to know Fred Rogers. <laughs> I, I, that was my reading rainbow from as early as I can remember to this day. If I see Fred Rogers pop up on, on PBS, I am hypnotized. We went, we, you and I went down a YouTube rabbit hole of some unedited 
interviews with Fred Rogers, which was nice because you just get to sit across. It's like sitting across from him for 30 minutes and experiencing all the pauses, all the stuff they normally edit out. And you just get somebody who always treats every question with respect and such thoughtfulness. And guess what? That was his attitude in every social encounter he ever had with a human being. He gave you his full and complete attention, and that moment was full of his respect for you and for the moment that you were sharing. Never met anyone like that man. I was convinced before I met Fred that that was an act, right? That no, nobody could be that nice. Nobody could be that present. But Fred Rogers was. He was that present. And he was that presence that, that, that you became familiar with and, and associated with him. That was real. That was absolute authenticity. Fred was one of the most authentic people I'd, 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 I've ever had the pleasure of meeting. I did want to ask you about your podcast, and I apologize that I didn't know what's been going on for so long. I was under the impression it was a very new thing, uh, but it's called LeVar Burton Reads, and um, it's you reading stories that you've selected, and this is seems to be for more of an adult audience. Um, how do you go about choosing the stories? Um, my producer, Julia Smith, I call her the best in the business because she is, um, she's the first level. Um, she, she knows my taste and, um, knows what I'll respond to. Um, I'm constantly reading on my own, so I'll bring in a story, um, or she'll bring stories to my attention. And I just, I read what I like. Um, it's as simple as that. I read what, what I like, something that's moved me, something that has struck a chord or a nerve inside of me that leads me to say, I, I, I want to share this story. I want to read this story aloud to people. Um, that's, that's it. That's in a nutshell. That's the, that's the selection process. <laughs> it's no more complex than that. I feel like it's part of my responsibility to continue to introduce my audience to material that they might not otherwise have found. I did it on, on Reading Rainbow, and, and, and I'm doing it now on the podcast. And so um, I tend to lean heavily into the genres of, of science fiction and fantasy, because that's what I read when I read for pleasure and enjoyment. And we are at a, a really extraordinary time in in that genre, because there are so many voices that have um, entered the field that need to be heard, that deserve to be heard. When I was growing up and when I first fell in love with science fiction and, and speculative fiction and, and, and fantasy, uh, there were very few stories with heroes in them who looked like me. Um, I read a story... Um, the other day, I just started recording season seven on the podcast, and I read a story for season seven the other day where the protagonist is a, 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 black, a black man who drives sort of like a, a rideshare service, drives for a rideshare service, and he does battle with a coven of, of, of white supremacist witches with his own magic and and it's and he's badass and i just think wow to be a kid and encounter a character like that as a, as a as a as a kid of color who <sighs> representation does matter you know if you if you if you don't see yourself reflected in the popular culture. It is so difficult to develop a healthy self-image. And especially in a culture where you're continually being told that the color of your skin is a, a detriment, is a handicap, you know? Um, so I, I just think that this is a, an amazing time to be a reader of speculative fiction because the variety of voices is just so rich and the talent is the talent pool is deep. I mean, it's deep. A lot of our listeners are big speculative fiction readers. Uh, what, 
would you suggest that uh, people dive into right now? What would be... Uh... Well, my favorite science fiction writer of all time is um, a woman named Octavia Butler. And she has many titles. She's passed now, but she, Octavia Butler. Um, anything by Octavia Butler. Um, I did a, a, a live version of the, of the podcast a few years ago where I toured. And I, I got to sit down with Sam Delaney, who is a, just a, a pioneer um, writer in, in the genre. And I met Nettie Orcor Four, um, who is an up and coming giant, um, in the tradition of Octavia Butler. She's, she has several series of books. The, 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 probably the most well-known is the Binti series. She's collaborating with George R. R. Martin, um, on, on a project. Um, she's just, she's a, a monster in, in the making. Um, Ken Liu, who is a brilliant, brilliant man, not just writer, he's also, he, he's a, he, he translates Chinese, um, so he translates other writers' works into English, um, and is, is one of the most intelligent human beings I've ever sat next to. Uh, and then uh, there are, uh, again, there are so many, any of the authors that I've just mentioned, um, Leslie Neka Arima, a beautiful writer, um, Kat Rambo, um, my God, I, I, there are just so, so many. Amal Al-Maktar, uh, there are just amazing voices out there. And then there are, you know, some of the classics. Read um, Isaac, Isaac Asimov's Foundation Trilogy. Um, it really gives you a great foundation for what the genre is all about. The genre of speculative fiction is magical to me because it invites us to contemplate two words that I believe are some of the most powerful in language. What if? What if? Right? And as we contemplate the what if, we recognize the possibilities that exist for us, that there is literally nothing that we can't do if we can imagine it. I mean, look at the technologies that we utilize every day that were inspired by Star Trek. You have to imagine it before you make it. You had to imagine it before you can make it. And I firmly believe that there was some kid watching those original series episodes and seeing Kirk pull out that communicator from that Velcroed place on his hip because as you and I both know, Anson, there are no pockets in the future. <laughs> <laughs> And he would flip that sucker open and call Scotty and have Scotty beam him up. Well, that kid grew up and became a scientist and an engineer and a, and, and, and a designer of product. And the flip cell phone became one of the most prevalent pieces of technology on its way to the iPhone. You think Steve Jobs wasn't a Star Trek fan? We used the iPads on the Enterprise, on my Enterprise, before they were invented. <laughs> Jordy, the chief engineer, had one that was just for him. It was red, right? Nobody carried the red pad but Jordy. I believe I read somewhere that there's a there's an, an it may be over now, but there there was an ongoing X Prize uh, for the first person to develop a tricorder, mm -hmm. a handheld medical device you can wave over the body and get a quick diagnostic. Uh, yeah. So yeah, it just keeps on going. Yeah, I, I I don't know that that X Prize has been has been claimed yet, but I know that that's that's a real thing, that is a real thing. Um, that's amazing. Yeah, yeah, it is amazing, and and I believe that that perhaps in our lifetimes, you know, we will we will achieve the holodeck in some form or fashion. I know that there are companies that are working on on a way of maximizing the the computing power of a chip. I think they call it geosynchronous systems architecture. So it's a way of 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 arrange how they arrange i don't know i don't i i'm not an engineer i, I do play one on tv and in the movies but i am <laughs> i am i am not one but anyway I, through, by getting more more bang for the buck from from the processor i i think we will get to the critical mass needed for actually creating and we're on our way i mean creating these three-dimensional environments um that we can actually um, play with, interact with. Uh, we are such inventive creatures, human beings, um, and are capable of such amazing wonders. 
And as because we are as complex as, as we are, we are also capable of abominable atrocities and in our terms of our behavior to one with one another. So, um, but yeah, we have, we have so much discovery, um, ahead of us. Um, if we, if, if, if we, um, make some good decisions and continue to have an environment in this planet that will, that will support life and, and, uh, further, development and discovery of, of, of new and wondrous ideas. Um, if, if we survive um, ourselves, we're going to be all right, as Kendrick Lamar says. We're going to be all right. Well, I think we'd be remiss if we don't ask you about your book, which I see sitting behind you framed. <laughs> the Rhino Who Swallowed a Storm. Yeah, yeah my first children's book. Yeah. I'm really proud of Rhino. I, I, I am. It was written in response to, um, I was in New York in, in Central Park one weekend shooting episodes for the Reading Rainbow app, um, shooting content for the app. And it was another one of those days when there were, there was, I think it was a shooting in a theater in Colorado. Somebody, you know, gone in with a semi-automatic or an automatic weapon and, and shot the place up and killed people. People died. And I recognized Fred Rogers was a, a, a real mentor um, of mine. He was a friend and, and, and a mentor. And it was Fred who really um, encouraged me in my effort, my desire to use the medium of television in a, in a positive way. Um, and Fred was gone. And, and I recognized that there was really no one kind of sort of stepping up and, 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 and filling in we're having this conversation with kids about the changing nature of the world and just how dangerous it felt because it felt dangerous to me as an adult. And I, I could only imagine how dangerous it felt to a kid with, you know, floods and, and hurricanes and, 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 and mass shootings in public places, including schools. And I wanted to create a vehicle for conversation around loss and recovery of, from loss. And out of that desire came the rhino who swallowed a storm. So what's next for you? Uh, anything uh, in the pipeline that you're excited about right now? Um, Are you going to be directing again anytime soon? I'm, I'm directing a, um, a documentary. I just took this project on called Two Front War. It's the story of the black Vietnam, the, the black experience in Vietnam. Um, Vietnam vets were, they had to fight a war in country and then they had to come home to this country and fight another war um, for social justice. So it's a, it's a story that, uh, that I'm really excited about telling. Um, I've just sold, I'm in the, I'm in the process, this, I've used this, this period of, of, uh, of lockdown to really advance the cause of, of LeVar Burton Entertainment, my production company. I've sold a couple of things to um, to streaming services. I'm developing several more, um, preparing a couple of more for pitches um, very soon. So I'm I'm um, as 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 an itinerant storyteller. I've traveled a lot, and I've just been grounded uh, for the last three months. And and so it's really given me a consistent amount of time to work. Um, with my partners, with my team at the company and with, with partners uh, that, that, that we have in really advancing a lot of this content that would have taken a lot longer had I been in and out of town all the time. I think this, this concentrated time at home has really served me well in that regard. So um, I'm really excited about what, what we are developing, what we're currently working on, the projects that we've sold and, and will be making soon, I suppose, when... <laughs> <laughs> when it's safe to go out in the world and make shit again. Um, and and I, 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 I'm really, I'm hopeful, you know? I have hope in my heart that, that we are in a moment now where, where real change is, is possible. You know, I, I, I never thought we would elect a, a black man president in this country. And when that happened, I thought, wow, um, boy, the sky's the limit. These past four years have really been um, difficult 
for me personally, just feeling the sense of retrenchment and, 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 and understanding how deep um, the racial animus in this country actually is. Yeah. Um, that, that Barack Obama being elected president was, was in no way a signal that we were in a post-racial society. In fact, quite the opposite. The backlash to him having been elected president has, has revealed um, a, a, a real dark heart at the core of this country. And so, uh, I didn't, again, this is something I didn't see coming. Um, I think this is an extraordinary moment that is just f- potent with possibilities. And it's an extraordinarily good time to be alive. You know how much better off we would all be if more people read and mm. were curious about the world. And mm. especially a lot of the same people who were. Um, <laughs> the people that are retrenching right now. Mm-hmm. Um, but I remember I'm from a little town in North Georgia, and I remember going past a, a church. It was little marquee signs of the letters out in front, and it said, the problem with books is that you don't know what's in them until it's too late. <laughs> 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 but I and this love was that un- and this was unironic. This they were serious. Yeah, no, oh, I man. I get it. I I love it. I love that quote. I, I'm gonna use that. I'm gonna use that because that's brilliant. That's brilliant. It reveals that's how brilliant. dangerous they are to some people, right? Well, it, it it every book I've ever read has revealed something that that I found either interesting or informative. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. that's absolute truth. You 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 don't know what's inside them until it's too late, right? <laughs> and that's the beauty of of books. That's right. the absolute magic of the written word that every single one contains something for the reader. Something they they pro- probably or perhaps hadn't been exposed to before or it hadn't been Posited that way, it hadn't been framed in a way or expressed in a way that it, they, it, it could really penetrate to the to the center of who they are and be of value in their lives. That's that's the magic. Even as a filmmaker, I'm uh, jealous of the way that a book is just this. You know, it's just wood pulp and ink, and it can travel through centuries and millennia and put you directly in the head and the thought process and in the moment of someone, you know, from far away from hundreds and hundreds. It's magic. It's, it's still, despite all the technology we've invented, I still think a book is probably the most magical piece of technology we've ever invented. I call them teleportation devices <laughs> because you, you were literally transported to, to what, what, whatever world, whatever moment whatever universe that the writer has created for you. And um, that's really powerful, you know. So for a, a, a guy who, you know, I, I make my living telling stories, whether I'm acting, writing, directing, producing, podcasting, public speaking. My passion is to share stories. I believe that stories are what bind us together. The stories that we tell each other and ourselves tend to set the table for who we are, why we're here, and I think on the most basic and fundamental level, it, it, our stories inform us in a way that helps us define what gift it is we have to give. I believe every single one of us on this planet has come for a specific purpose, and that purpose is to deliver their gift to the world. Mm-hmm. And, and it's the stories that we, that we tell that help us frame and discover what our gift is. That's my story, and I'm sticking to it.
Caldwell is produced, recorded, and edited by Brandon Edgens and me, Anson Mount. Theme music by Jonathan Myberg. Extra music provided by Twin Atlas under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike 3.0 license. Special thanks for this episode go out to LeVar Burton for taking the time to sit down with us. For more information on LeVar and his myriad projects, you can visit his official website, LeVarBurton.com. We'll also provide information about LeVar, his podcast, and all the authors he mentioned today on our website, TheWellPod.com. That's TheWellPod.com. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, and don't forget to subscribe wherever you download your podcasts. Have a great week, everyone. Thank you.